This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Oncogene Brief, we talk with Dr. John B. Kissel, Assistant Professor of Medicine and a consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology in Hepatology, Department of Internal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The overall goal of Dr. Kissel is to improve the clinical outcomes of patients with gastrointestinal illness by providing excellent bedside care and conducting clinical and translational research. His primary research focus is the prevention and early diagnosis of cancer and precancers in high-risk patients. In today's program, we talk with Dr. Kissel about finding cancers early, which is part of an evolution of cancer diagnostics since the signing of the National Cancer Act and the start of the war on cancer in the 1970s. Over the last decades, the development of new technologies designed to detect cancer early has become a priority in research. The clear advantage of being able to treat cancer sooner is that it may lead to to better results and offer a survival advantage. And with early diagnosis, treatment may also be less invasive. At the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, Dr. Kissel is among a select number of physicians working on the development of these novel tools. Together with a multidisciplinary team of doctors and scientists, Dr. Kissel validated, for example, the use of stool DNA to detect cancers and precancers. These diagnostic tests use state-of-the-art molecular genetic techniques and are developed in collaboration with industry partners, including exact sciences, and various centers of medical excellence. The collaboration between exact sciences and Mayo Clinic started in 2009. One of the results of this collaboration was the development of Cologuard, a stool-based advanced DNA screen test for colorectal cancer. This non-invasive test was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 2014 and has been used by more than 1 million patients. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Youngest in Brief. Stool DNA testing, which has been validated in the general population for detecting colon cancers and polyps, shows promise for detecting cancers throughout the gastrointestinal tract. Dr. Kiesel and his colleagues are working to to develop this technology to non-invasively screen for cancers that are difficult to detect by currently available tools. With this effort, they hope to reduce patient discomfort, improve patient care, and, which is also a key consideration, lower costs of care. Among other types of novel diagnostic diagnostic tests being developed by Dr. Kiesel and his co-workers at Mayo Clinic is a new test designed to identify a blood-based DNA biomarker panel to accurately diagnose hepatocellular carcinoma. Data presented at the Digestive Disease Week held June 2nd through 5th, 2018 in Washington, D.C. shows that a panel of six biomarkers is 95% sensitive for the most common type of liver cancer. You can read more about those results of these and other studies in the online edition of Oncazine at oncazine.com, or you can read a summary in our weekly newsletter. To receive the newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. Working together with researchers at Exact Sciences, Dr. Kissel and his co-workers announced significant progress toward the development of a panel of novel blood-based DNA biomarkers that could accurately detect hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC the most common cancer that originates in the liver. Their researchers detailed their findings during a presentation at the Digestive Disease Week, 
the world's largest gathering of gastroenterologists and scientists in this field. The biomarker panel was shown to be 95% sensitive to detecting hepatocellular carcinoma across all stages. Sensitivity among patients with curable stage disease was 91%. The panel has overall specificity of 93%, demonstrating its ability to discriminate between normal and deceased patients. Sensitivity and specificity are the most important statistical measures of a cancer detection test's performance. These results are further validation of advanced DNA technology and a multi-biomarker approach for the detection of the deadliest forms of cancers. Hepatocellular carcinoma accounts for nearly 90% of all liver cancers and is the fastest growing cause of cancer-related death in the United States. Mayo Clinic experts predict that liver and bile duct cancers will be the third leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States by 2030, due, in part, to the obesity epidemic. The individuals diagnosed with cirrhosis have the greatest risk of developing hepatocellular carcinoma, and it is recommended that they undergo ultrasound and blood monitoring every 6 to 12 months. The three-year survival rate for patients regularly tested is a is approximately 60%, compared to approximately 30% for those who are not regularly tested. When hepatocellular carcinoma is detected early and treated, patient survival rates improve significantly. Researchers at Exact Sciences estimate that more than 3 million Americans are eligible for hepatocellular carcinoma testing and surveillance. Because current options for monitoring at-risk patients are suboptimal, the potential of an accurate non-invasive blood test that can identify early-stage disease could potentially transform the way patients are monitored and lead to the identification of many more curable stage tumors. Today, fewer than half of at-risk patients are tested regularly, and some estimates suggest that monitoring rates is less than 20% in primary care settings where most patients get their care. Using DNA extracted from blood samples of 244 people, including 95 diagnosed across all stages of hepatocellular carcinoma, 51 with cirrhosis, and 98 healthy volunteers, researchers tested the samples against 15 biomarkers to identify the combination of six biomarkers that yielded the most accurate detection of hepatocellular carcinoma. Now, researchers must confirm the accuracy of the biomarkers they've studied for the detection of hepatocellular carcinoma. But in the end, they are seeking to apply this DNA assay technology to detect all cancers. And the findings presented at the Digestive Disease Week, focusing on hepatocellular carcinoma, are an important step towards that goal. In our interview with Dr. Kissel, we talked about hepatocellular carcinoma and the new diagnostic approach to detect the disease. Let's listen to the interview. Uh, Dr. Kiesel, um, you are a gastroenterologist uh, working at Mayo Clinic. Uh, before we go to talk a little bit further in the program about uh, hepatocellular carcinoma and about uh, the approaches in diagnostics, can you tell me a little bit about uh, yourself and about um, Mayo Clinic and how the approach that Mayo Clinic takes is sometimes different than what other centers uh, may be doing? 
Well, as you mentioned earlier, I'm a gastroenterologist. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic. Uh, and the focus of my uh, clinical practice and my research is the early detection and prevention of cancer. Um, Mayo Clinic uh, is an, a patient-centered institution. We uh, have a, a practice volume of over a million uh, patients annually. Uh, and our tripartite mission is focused on patient care, uh, medical education, and medical research. Uh, but the research and the patient and the education shields really um, go to support that central uh, patient care mission. And um, as uh, many may know, our, our sort of um, central and overriding aphorism or motto is that the needs of the patient uh, are the only ones to be considered and that the, the patient comes first in the eyes of, uh, of our entire enterprise. Um, that said, uh, we do have many people doing outstanding uh, basic science uh, research here at Mayo, but uh, my research program uh, has really focused on uh, translational application of biomarker chemistry uh, to directly uh, get tests to the bedside to benefit our patients um, in the quickest uh, possible uh, mechanisms. Let's take a short break here and then we talk some more. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. John B. Kissel. And welcome back. This is the Oncosine Brief. And if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. John B. Kissel. Dr. Kissel is Assistant Professor of Medicine and a consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, Department of Internal Medicine, at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So, if you look again, um, there is, of course, there is a lot going on in clinical trials. Um, Often, when you look at clinical trials, uh, they, they're done by academic centers, um, including Mayo, I believe. Um, how does that, and you said you're involved in translational medicine. The big question sometimes people ask is, how does a clinical trial translate into real-life experience, both for the doctor as well as the benefit of the patient? Sure, I can give you a, a very good recent example. Um, I worked on a, 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 a very large team here at Mayo in development of the multi-target uh, stool DNA test for colorectal cancer screening uh, that's been commercialized by a company named Exact Sciences out of Madison, Wisconsin, uh, and is branded as Colaguard. That was uh, largely the brainchild of my mentor, Dr. David Alquist, uh, who developed much of the biochemistry and engineering technology behind that uh, before partnering with Exact Sciences in 2009. And then since that time, Mayo and Exact worked to uh, get that clinical assay to FDA standards, uh, get the pivotal uh, clinical trial done that was required for FDA approval, and then launch that test uh, into the commercial patient care space. And now, to date, since 2014, when the test was approved by the United States Food and Drug Administration and covered by Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, there have now been over a million patients that have been screened with that test. 
and we estimate that for every 1,000 tests that have been done, there are probably about six curable stage cancers that are detected and prevented from causing significant harm to patients. So that in many ways serves for us as a model by which we can start to bring new cancer prevention tests uh, to, the, um, to, to the market and to our patients uh, as quickly as possible. Now, um, this is obviously a very clear in, um, test. Um, it's uh, something that is, uh, people can see almost daily on television. Um, when you look at um, the products that you do, the, the tests that you're involved in and the development that you're involved in, not everything is as clear-cut. Well, I think right now... Uh, one could approach that statement by by one of several different responses. Um, right now, we only have about three cancers that are widely endorsed for population-level screening. That would be colon cancer, breast cancer, and cervical cancer. And we screen for those cancers one organ and one test at a time. And this leaves many other uh, highly lethal cancers that are currently not screened. And so that has been the current focus of our research program is to try to develop uh, novel biomarkers, novel screening, and novel surveillance tests for these other um, very deadly diseases uh, in order to try to improve patient outcomes, mainly the suffering uh, and the morbidity caused by uh, late-stage cancer. When cancers present with symptoms, they're often advanced and incurable at that point. And while our uh, oncology colleagues uh, have made enormous progress in terms of the development of new therapies. Our program is really focused on preventing those cancers from uh, getting to uh, advanced stage in the first place by detecting them early. Right. Um, as a gastroenterologist, um, and, and this goes a little bit to uh, uh, liver cancer and hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, you're involved in the treatment um, research based on, on, on those diseases. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the unmet ne medical need uh, in, in this particular series of diseases? Sure. Um, hepatocellular carcinoma is a, a tumor that arises primarily from uh, diseased liver tissue itself. So this is different from other cancers arising in different organs which may commonly spread to the liver, hepatocellular carcinoma or hepatoma typically arrives in the setting of chronic liver disease. And most frequent causes of that in the United States would be uh, cirrhotic or fibrotic stage liver disease as a consequence of alcohol, uh, hepatitis C, uh, and uh, increasingly liver damage that is due to metabolic syndrome in association with the obesity epidemic. Another very high-risk group worldwide, though less common in the United States, um, is the uh, patient population that is chronically infected with hepatitis B. And these are patients who can develop uh, cirrhosis, uh, they can develop a hepatocellular carcinoma without having cirrhotic stage uh, liver disease. So this is a, a relatively large pool of patients, and so we estimate worldwide that actually uh, hepatocellular carcinoma is probably the second most lethal cancer worldwide. In the United States, it's a uh, less common cause of cancer death right now than colon cancer, 
uh, or pancreatic cancer, for instance, but we suspect that by uh, the year 2030 that cancers of the liver and bile duct will probably be the third most common cause of cancer fatality in the United States. And really, that's not very far off. That's uh, 10 or 12 years from now. Dr. Kiesel, hepatocellular carcinoma, which is also called HCC, is often confused with metastatic liver cancer. However, these two cancers are not the same. Can you explain the differences? Well, cancers commonly spread from other organs to the liver because the liver receives uh, an enormous amount of blood supply from uh, other organs coming in, such as uh, the small and then the large intestine. So colon cancer, for instance, is a disease that will commonly spread from the colon to the liver through lymph nodes and blood supply. Uh, hepatocellular carcinoma is a tumor that arises in the liver and may spread outside of the liver into other organs. These two cancers also have very different um, uh, imaging characteristics, and that's the primary way that we tell these uh, types of tumors apart. So, for instance, if a patient is diagnosed with a colon cancer, uh, we would look at the liver to make sure that the colon cancer has not spread uh, into the liver as part of the treatment uh, plan uh, and the development of the treatment plan through staging. But for uh, liver cancer, we primarily are looking at a population of patients that we suspect is at risk for liver cancer and then doing periodic surveillance tests with either ultrasound or a protein marker called alpha-fetoprotein or AFP. And those tests are recommended by the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease to be performed as often as every six months in patients who have known cirrhosis or in patients uh, selected by age groups and ethnicity who are known to have uh, chronic hepatitis B infection. Let's take a short break. Our guest today, Dr. John B. Kissel, Assistant Professor of Medicine and a consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology in the Department of Internal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. After a break, we'll talk a bit more with Dr. Kissel. I'm Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncazine Brief. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others, huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us.
Welcome back to the Oncozoom Brief. I'm Sonia Portillo, joined with Peter Hoffland, and today we're speaking to Dr. Kissel, who is a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic, whose primary research focuses on the prevention and early diagnosis of cancers and precancers throughout the gastrointestinal tract. Dr. Kissel, uh, before the the program, uh, before the break, actually, we were talking a little bit about uh, different ways of diagnosis, dosing cancer, about some of the the way hepatocellular carcinoma and other forms of uh, liver cancer are manifesting themselves. You mentioned cirrhosis. Uh, One of the things that uh, people may... Uh, confused them are confused about is that cirrhosis may be linked to um, um, overuse of alcohol uh, obviously it's also something that is seen in different forms of liver disease can you explain a little bit more about that yes yeah, so that that's that's uh, that's correct and I'll elaborate um, cirrhosis is a, um, uh, a pathophysiologic state that is the final common pathway of many forms of chronic liver disease it's characterized by scar tissue buildup within the liver such that the liver on both a microscopic level and even on imaging or a gross examination will appear nodular from scar tissue and this causes uh, a great disruption in terms of liver function and the way that blood flows through the liver and the way that the uh, liver can then um, produce clotting proteins, uh, detoxify the blood uh, and do all of its other myriad of metabolic tasks and that is what ultimately leads to the production of symptoms of cirrhosis such as uh, confusion, varicose veins forming uh, throughout the body and the GI tract as well as the accumulation of fluid in the abdomen uh, and the risk of bleeding. Um, There are many patients though who have uh, cirrhosis of the liver. They may have that scarring and who may have no uh, symptoms whatsoever. If if you look at symptoms, um, what do patients need to be aware of in that case? Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, patients who have, um, uh, you know, one of the first things that we may see as clinicians would be uh, a drop in a patient's platelet count that may alert us to the fact that uh, there may be scar tissue in the liver that is impacting uh, its neighbor, the spleen, uh, and enlarging the spleen to pull uh, certain old blood cells out of circulation, especially platelets. Uh, we may or may not see derangements in other uh, uh, chemistry profiles that we measure in blood, uh, but often patients will not have very many symptoms at all until they decompensate. And as I mentioned earlier, that would be manifest as encephalopathy or confusion. That may be something subtle, like an altered sleep-wake cycle, uh, all the way up to frank uh, delirium. Uh, patients may have bleeding events. Uh, they may accumulate fluid in their lower extremities or in their abdomen. Uh, and that abdominal fluid collection is called ascites. And those are some of the cardinal manifestations of a decompensation of cirrhosis. But many patients are walking around with with no symptoms at all. Uh, That's one of the reasons uh, why there has been a focus more recently on trying to get selected populations of patients uh, potentially uh, screened and tested for some of the underlying causes of cirrhosis that are uh, very common. So you mentioned alcohol earlier, but there is an epidemic of hepatitis C. One in 30 uh, patients in the baby boomer age range are affected, um, and so they're now encouraged to get screened. Um, 
there's also the obesity epidemic such that uh, now uh, probably uh, upwards of 35, closer to 40% of the United States adult population uh, is obese. And that's actually the fastest rising cause of cirrhosis of the need for liver transplant in cirrhosis and of the development of hepatocellular carcinoma in cirrhosis. Now, in many cases, of course, you you're, uh, can only kind of start treating patients um, if you diagnose them first. Um, so when you look at liver cancer, when you look at hepatocellular carcinoma, um, what are some of the main avenues in which you diagnose? I mean, especially if they're, what you just mentioned earlier, are... Uh, very few symptoms uh, for for patients to be concerned about. So I think what we do is once we've identified that a patient has cirrhosis, uh, we enroll them in a surveillance program to make sure that among a number of other potential problems that they could suffer, uh, that that we if we find a liver cancer, we're able to try to find it early. That's the goal of. Uh, of, of, of a cirrhotic stage patient surveillance program. Um, there are patients, unfortunately, who have no symptoms until they present with the symptom of the liver cancer itself, and usually at that point uh, the disease is advanced and much more difficult, if not impossible, to cure. Confirmation of the diagnosis is usually made through imaging, so often a biopsy is not required. If a patient has cirrhosis, there are hallmark imaging features either on CT or MRI, which can give us the diagnosis if it's suspected by another uh, imaging modality like ultrasound, which is used more commonly as a screening test. The other more expensive, um, higher resolution imaging uh, approaches are primarily used to confirm a diagnosis. Now let's switch gears a bit and talk about treatment options for hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC. So, Dr. Kissel, what are some of the options that are currently available for patients diagnosed with this disease? So, um, there are several options. Uh, probably the one of the best uh, options, if it's technically possible to perform it in a patient, is liver transplantation. Uh, because the hepatocellular carcinoma is arising in a diffusely diseased organ, even if you're able to remove or ablate uh, a single individual tumor that's small, the same individual is then at risk for developing tumors elsewhere in the liver. Uh, so patients that qualify for a transplant are often listed for one on the basis of having uh, a liver cancer that meets certain very strict criteria that help us decide whether or not the patient is likely to benefit from the transplant in the long run. Uh, for patients that are not eligible for transplant or for patients who are waiting for one, there are a variety of what we call the local regional therapies, which are primarily administered by interventional radiologists. And these are uh, techniques that apply either a chemotherapeutic agent or um, a, uh, a a local uh, brachy radiation therapy or even uh, a mechanism to destroy blood flow to the tumor as a way to shrink down um, or slow down tumor growth. Um, there are, for patients who don't qualify for either of those or for patients who have advanced stage disease, there are some uh, targeted uh, uh, chemotherapeutic agents. Uh, they have a, a fair amount of side effects and a, a modest improvement in overall survival, but we will use those in, uh, in many cases as well. 
Now we're talking about treatment options, but before treatment, obviously there needs to be a diagnosis. So what are some of the main avenues to diagnose hepatocellular carcinoma? So the main diagnostic avenue, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is a triple phase uh, CAT scan or MRI of the liver. And that exploits the um, differences that liver tumors have in their blood supply and architecture that help them stand out against other uh, potential liver lesions uh, in the differential diagnosis. And the criteria are actually good enough that our radiologists can make the diagnosis often on the basis of a CT or MRI alone without the need for a biopsy. So when you um, look at, um, at, at hepatocellular carcinoma, um, outcomes are often poor in advanced um, hepatocellular carcinoma. However, if you look at early stage disease, um, it becomes very treatable. Now, we were talking about some of the, uh, the, the potential need for um, a, a liver transplant um, or uh, pharmacotherapy. Um, how, is, how does it, it makes it easier to treat in uh, early, disease, early stage disease? Yes, yeah, so the earlier the disease is detected, the more likely that we are to be able to apply potentially curative therapies. So um, the local regional therapies and transplant that I mentioned earlier are primarily therapies that are offered towards uh, patients with early stage disease. And in, in fact, sometimes patients with early stage disease, if their cirrhosis is very well compensated, they may be even amenable for a, a surgical resection of the tumor. Uh, as the cirrhosis becomes more advanced, that approach becomes more dangerous to the patient. So the goal um, with our research program and the, and the goal with surveillance in general is to try to detect the tumors at an earlier stage. Okay, let's uh, take a short break here. Um, if you are just joining us, uh, we're talking to Dr. Kissel. This is the Onkocin Brief, and if you're just joining us, uh, today we're talking with Dr. Kissel. He was a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Kissel, welcome back uh, to the Onkocin Brief. Before, um, early on in the program, we were talking a little bit about uh, the different approaches of the disease, about the unmet medical need in the disease. Um, and one of the things that you're involved with is um, some of the detection of the disease. I mean, you are working on uh, methylated DNA markers um, and trying to um, detect the disease, if I'm not not, not mistaken. Um, now, a couple of weeks uh, earlier, we were talking to somebody who was involved in the development of liquid biopsies. Uh, was also talking about very specific markers um, in DNA to detect cancer. Um, if we look at your approach and we look at methylated DNA markers, how does your approach differ from for what people would consider a standard um, liquid biopsy? Sure. I, I, I'll approach that question by kind of defining what liquid biopsy is, and that's a very broad and general term that for the most part uh, refers to trying to sample tumor 
um, contents or components remotely. And, and what, we, what we mean by liquid biopsy is we're going to take a blood sample from a patient, usually peripheral venous blood, the kind you'd have drawn at a corner laboratory, and then try to identify within that blood chemical constituents of the tumor, whether that's intact tumor cells, um, whether that's protein markers of the tumor, or also commonly uh, nucleic acids such as DNA and RNA. Uh, within the DNA uh, uh, compartment, um, DNA that's circulating in, in blood uh, plasma may often be highly fragmented, and so we don't re retrieve intact chromosomes. We're often retrieving uh, small pieces of DNA, um, about uh, 50 to 100 to 200 base pairs in length. When we have a DNA fragment like that, uh, we can look for several chemical characteristics of the DNA. We can look for alterations in the sequence uh, of the bases in DNA, the GTAC code, um, and that would be an analysis looking for mutations of the DNA. In methylation uh, of DNA, we're, we're referring to uh, not a change in the sequence, uh, but a covalent uh, modification of the residues uh, that will contain a methyl or a one carbon group that's been attached to um, uh, sequences where a C and a G are right next to each other. And we have found through uh, a decade or more of systematic research that a relatively small number of methylation markers uh, will be representative of the vast majority of cancers and precancers that we can find at a, at a tissue level. DNA mutations are very heterogeneous. They fall into many different categories, and a tumor can have hundreds of different types of DNA mutations, and then there are some tumors that will not have uh, the same mutations that you might find even in the same individual uh, if they have two tumors of the same kind. So there's a lot more heterogeneity there. And for that reason, we focused on, on DNA methylation because we feel that it is um, more broadly informative. Fewer markers are needed to make uh, a diagnosis, um, and uh, it can do so with fairly great sensitivity and specificity. And DNA, among many of the other constituents that we could be analyzing in a liquid biopsy format, is a relatively stable analyte, and it can be amplified through very uh, sensitive assay systems that uh, we and many other laboratories have developed over the years. Going back to methylated DNA markers, can you explain what these are and the role that they play in the surveillance of HCC? Sure. So when we look at HCC tumors, uh, there are hot spots within uh, the genome of those tumors, within the cellular DNA content, where there are um, islands um, next to important functional genes that contain um, an excessive amount of methylation, more than we would expect for a normal liver cell. And when liver tumors are growing rapidly, um, oftentimes cells in those tumors will die, and the uh, contents of that cell will, by reasons we don't fully understand, get shed into uh, the systemic venous circulation. And we are then measuring pieces of those uh, cancer genomes with a, uh, a blood sample and an assay that attempts to amplify uh, those DNA fragments that we're looking for. So we have developed a list of DNA fragments that we're going to look for based on what we find in studies that we've done in primary um, tumor tissues. Uh, and then we try to reproduce 
those hotspots um, or try to detect those hotspots uh, by fragments of DNA that would have been shed from them. Okay. Dr. Kiesel, thank you very much uh, for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This edition of the Oncosine Brief was originally recorded during the Digestive Disease Week held June 2nd through 5th in Washington, D.C. Hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC, is the most commonly occurring form of liver cancer globally. More than half a million people are diagnosed with hepatocellular carcinoma each year. The primary risk factor for hepatocellular carcinoma is chronic liver disease, such as cirrhosis. It's recommended that people at high risk for hepatocellular carcinoma get screened every 6 to 12 months through a combination of ultrasound and alpha-fetoprotein blood tests. However, these current monitoring tests have limitations in accuracy and accessibility. Liver ultrasound detects only 45% of early-stage cancer. In the United States, nearly 42,000 people are diagnosed and more than 30,000 people die annually from liver cancer, which includes hepatocellular carcinoma and intrahepatic bile duct cancer. For more information about hepatocellular carcinoma, visit the American Cancer Society's website at cancer.org. For us here at the Oncozine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio in addition to PRX Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. You can also download our program via iTunes. In Arizona, you can listen to the Oncozine Brief via Independent Talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, check out our online journal at oncazine.com. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. We'll post as many answers as we can on our website, oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E.com. To help make this program possible, please visit our page at patreon.com forward slash the Oncozine Brief. Your support for this program is important. It allows us to bring your interviews with experts involved in the development of novel diagnostics and new treatments in oncology. So please visit our page at patreon.com forward slash the brief to see how you can support this program. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word cancer, C-A-N-C-E-R, to 66866. And we'll make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you. And thanks for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The Oncozine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wynn, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice 
and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it. The Oncocene Brief is in part made possible by generous support from Kite Rocket. Kite Rocket, making brands more valuable. For more information about public relation beyond classic PR support, contact Martin Pyrrhic at Kite Rocket in Phoenix at 602-443-0030 or visit their website at kiterocket.com.